Okay. So uh, this is week three on our series on Philippians. And, uh, and as I've already explained, this book is chock full of two major concepts, Jesus and joy. And this letter was written to the church at Philippi uh, so that they could quit flip-flopping and they could get their joy in Jesus. That's what this series is all about. That's what the book is all about. And, uh, and as we're listening to Paul's words in Philippians, we're also reminded to keep fighting for joy. Because joy is not something that we sit back and receive like a pina colada on a cruise. That's not how we get joy. Joy is something that we wrestle to obtain. It's something that we fight for. Joy is hard won. And the only way that we can quit our flip-flopping, our roller coaster faith, all the ups and downs, is by getting joy in Jesus. That's the only way. And it's not easy. But it is absolutely within your reach. For every single one of us. And so a couple of weeks ago, because last week we had Joe Okren here, but a couple of weeks ago, in my last sermon on this series, I talked about how, how, we, how we get a joy that completes. And so we looked at how life would change if we took Paul's example in verse 1 of Philippians chapter 1. So if we took Paul's example in verse 1 and we considered ourselves as servants of Christ and we considered others as saints in Christ. We also looked at the amazing privilege of being messengers of grace and peace. That in Jesus, God has declared a ceasefire an amnesty, that the war is over, that the, his, that the hostilities are done with, that in Jesus we are accepted and loved. If you're in Christ, this is your reality right now. You are accepted. You are loved. And lastly, I stated that if you're not feeling joy-filled right now, one surefire solution is to partner with someone in the gospel, to change your life from being about you and surviving to making your life about something great, something eternal, something purpose-filled. A life all about the gospel is a life of joy. If your life is all about the message of the gospel, you have a life of joy. If you don't, if it's not, then you don't. And then I encourage you as well that if you're feeling isolated and lonely, number one, remember that God's grace and peace, as we read in verse 2, is still with you. That does not change. And number two, I encourage you to change the way you live. Start living an others-focused life and see how God unlocks the fountains of joy both in your life and in the lives of those to whom you give and you serve. So don't just live. Don't just exist. Partner with someone in the gospel. This is fellowship with purpose. Last time. We talked about a joy that completes. God who began it will complete it, as we read in verse 6. But today we're going to talk about a joy that overflows. But how can I be preaching about a joy that overflows after a week like we've had? Your basement may have overflowed with flood water. Your personal things may be ruined. Your return on your crops is maybe going to be the worst that it's ever been. Your summer vacation has had to be cut short. 
you've had the kids underfoot way more than you would have liked because of this atrocious weather. Your depression might be deeper and more profound than usual because it matches the, the low in the atmosphere. Your basement is overflowed. Your emotions are overflowed. And here's your loving, concerned pastor telling you to get overflowing joy. But I do ask you to please keep on listening. We uh, have a book in our dining room, on our dining room table, called 450 Unfinished Sentences. And I love these kinds of books. I also love these Would You Rather books uh, because it gets my family thinking. It introduces something new into the routine of the conversation. And in fact, let us try this right now. Turn to the person next to you, and you have one minute to answer this question. Would you rather live in the wilderness? I'm not talking about the boonies. I'm not talking about Harnett Road. I'm talking about, you know, the wilderness. Would you rather live in the wilderness far from civilization, or would you rather live on the streets of a city as a homeless person? So think of a desert. Think somewhere so far from civilization Would you rather live there all by yourself, or would you rather live as a homeless person on the streets of a city? You have one minute to answer. Go ahead. A few more seconds. Now, these kind of questions are great because they lift us out of the rut of familiar conversation. And I think sometimes our prayer life needs the same treatment. In fact, let me let you in on a little secret. I don't think that God is in this relationship with me for the scintillating conversation. There are days when I have nothing new to say. There are are times when I've prayed the same thing over and over again for weeks and for weeks. There are days when I pray just because, not days, weeks. There are weeks when I pray just because I feel that I should. There are, there are seasons when there's no excitement, no realization that the person with whom I'm speaking is the creator of the universe who holds my very breath in his hands. There is no awe in my conversation with him. There's no wonder. There's no inventiveness, no creativity in my conversation with God. And sometimes I think that we need conversation starters with God. I know that I do. And that's why I use prayer books regularly in my prayer. I love praying other people's prayers because mine are sometimes so boring that I send myself to sleep. My imagination runs dry. And most of us are probably the same. We all go back to our familiar phrases in our prayer, like those people who use the word just a lot in prayers. Lord, we just want to thank you that you were here, and Lord, you were just so amazing and so wonderful, and just, Lord, we ask you just that you pour down on us in power, and just we ask that you just show us who you are, just totally, just like, just move in our midst today, so that we can just go out and just show others just who you are. Perhaps you're a just prayer. Perhaps you have other fallback words or phrases. We all have our patterns, our sweet our sweet spots that we like to return to in prayer, our comfortable ruts that we get into. And so in the same way as I sometimes use conversation starters with my family around our dinner table at home, I use conversation starters when I'm in prayer with God. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 through 11, 
is an amazing conversation starter with God. So let's read it, if we can have it up on the screen. Philippians chapter 1, verse 9 through 11 says this, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. One commentator pointed out that this prayer has no object. It's this, this prayer for love has no object. It's not love for God. It doesn't talk about God. It doesn't talk about each other. I realize there's this big scary insect flying around. If it gets near to me, give me a heads up and I'll move. But this, but this love has no object. It's not love for God. It's not love for each other. It just says love. And think about it. Paul is praying that this love builds and builds and builds until it sprays out like an untethered fire hose covering everyone in the area with love. God gets showered with love. Friends get showered with love. Neighbors get showered with love. Enemies get totally drenched in love. And I think this is a great image of what happens when the love of an infinite God flows into a limited human being. We can only get so full before we start to overflow. And do you remember last week that I talked about Paul writing his letter with feverish fluidity, like Ralphie? Well, now we know the reason for this outpouring of this love that we read in verse 4, where he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. And the reason for Paul's almost embarrassing overflow of outburst of joy is because he's filled up with the love of Jesus. There's nowhere for it to go, so he has to write it down. He's exploding. And in verse 9, what he's praying is that the Philippians experience what he's already experienced. Paul is using superlative after superlative. I pray that your love may abound, superlative number one, more, superlative number two, and more, superlative number three, that may abound more and more. And that reminds me of a coffee that I went out for recently with my friend Aaron. He ordered the triple chocolate cookie. Triple chocolate. First, the dough is chocolate. Then there are two types of chocolate um, chips scattered throughout the cookie. And then in the middle is this kind of a gooey chocolate center. It's chocolate upon chocolate upon chocolate. You cannot get away from the chocolate. And this prayer is like the triple chocolate cookie of prayers. May your love abound more and more. Corrie Tamboom was a Christian Dutch woman who was sent to a concentration camp with her sister Betsy during World War II. She survived the camp. And in 1947, after the war was, was done, she traveled around Germany with the message that God forgives. She was in Munich as part of this tour. And listen to her as she explains what happened in Munich. These are her words. It was the truth that they needed most to hear in that in that bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. When we confess our sins, I said, God casts them into the deepest ocean gone forever. And that's when I saw him. 
working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the, the overcoat and the brown hat, and the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form in front of me, ribs sharp against the parchment skin. My sister and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. I remembered him and his leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrück in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard in there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things that I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fräulein, again the hand came out, will you forgive me? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most, most difficult thing that I've ever had to do. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. She writes, Jesus, help me. I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears into my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. Now notice what happened in her account. She did not wait for the feelings to come before acting. No, she knew the the truth of what God had said in his word, and she responded in obedience, even though she did not feel it. And then the healing warmth came, the transformation, the feeling. And it is this that is love that abounds more and more that we read about in Philippians Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. This is love that abounds more and more, and it only comes from God. So maybe what we need to do to unlock God's infinite resources of love is to start doing loving things, even though we don't feel them. We need to pray along with with Corrie Ten Boom. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. Faithfulness comes before the feeling. Obedience comes before the emotion. And this is my prayer for you, is that your love may abound more and more. But that's not the whole story. Let's keep reading on. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and, and all discernment. And these words have troubled me because on first glance, it seems that Paul is reining himself in. He, he starts off, may your love abound more and more. And then it seems like he catches himself. Maybe he realizes that you know, he's overdoing it. And so he waves an admonishing finger as if to say, but don't let it go overboard. Let's not go crazy. 
And it seems like he's using knowledge and discernment as a cap or ceiling on our love. Just in case the love gets too much, let's throw in some knowledge and discernment, you know, to balance things out. After all, you don't want things to get too hippy-dippy, lovey-dovey. So let's throw in some sensible words like knowledge and discernment into the mix. But this is not what Paul is saying. Knowledge and discernment don't diminish love. Far from it. In fact, knowledge and discernment pour fuel on the fire of love. Knowledge and discernment fan the flame. Knowledge and discernment get the party going. Think about it. If for the past 13 years of marriage, every time I saw Wendy, I just said to her, I love you, you're so amazing, you're so great, I just want to tell you that you're just the best in the whole, just whole wide world, the energy that that would take would eventually run out. It's not sustainable, and neither is it sincere, even though I do love her very much. What I need to do is to get to know her, to keep asking questions, to rediscover her both as she and I grow older. And this knowledge helps me discern how, I, how best I can be her husband, which leads to a deeper love. And this is one reason I think why so many marriages fail, because the conversation has dried up, and where there is no conversation, there is no engaging of the hearts and mind. And when there is no engaging of the hearts and mind, there is no love, or love starts to reduce. And anyone married for any length of time will tell you that sex can only take you so far. Relationships need more than fireworks, contrary to what we see in the movies. What they need is a burning fire that is fueled and fanned by knowledge. And so it is with us and God. Our love for God will abound more and more as we fuel that love with knowledge and with discernment. We need to study God. We need to get to know him. And I can promise you without any insincerity that when I've chosen to dive deep into the truths of God, even the really difficult ones that I'm not sure how it's going to end up, I have never resurfaced feeling less in love with God. My worship is always greater and my love is always more profound. Don't take my word for it. Try it yourself. There's a guy called... Um, called Tony Merida, and he says this, knowledge asks the question, what is right? Whereas discernment asks the question, what is best? I'll say that again. Knowledge asks the question, what is right? Discernment asks the question, what is best? So we start with the question, what is right? This is about principles. But then knowing what is right in principle, it allows us to ask, what is the best in this particular situation? We can say, with what I understand about what is right, these eternal truths that never change, what now is the best thing to do in this situation? This is the connection between knowledge and, and discernment. So changed beliefs cha leads to, a cha to, to changed behavior. But we get into trouble when we try to, to discern, to, to make a decision in that situation without knowledge, without having these underlying principles. When we try to make an, an ethical decision without a moral framework, we get in, into trouble, which is why the most miserable people in the world are those who behave how they think Christians should behave without believing that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. 
Seriously, they're absolutely miserable. I've seen them. You've seen them. Maybe you're even one of them. It kind of makes me want to tell them, don't come to church. Life's too short. Don't waste your Sunday mornings at church. Go out and do something you enjoy. But of course, no self-respecting pastor would tell anyone not to come to church. And so the better thing to do by far is to get life in Jesus Christ. And then Sunday mornings become the highlight of your week. Okay, that's my little rabbit trail done. But if we don't have knowledge, if we don't have have any discernment, then all we have is a vague, flabby love without any form or substance. It's all heartbeat and no bones. But if we only have knowledge and discernment, but we don't have any love then we have, all we have is a dry and dusty skeleton. It's got good definition, but no life. All bones and no heartbeat. And there's a reason that Paul tells us to, to pursue an abounding love with knowledge and discernment. Look at the first part of verse 10. So that you may approve what is excellent. Love is the lifeblood of the Christian faith, but knowledge and discernment are the blood vessels that allow it to flow. If there is no knowledge and no discernment, then the love just pools uselessly on the ground. But if there is no love, then the blood vessels are empty and they've got nothing to carry. Love with knowledge and discernment. This is the key. And so Paul prays that their love would abound in the sphere of knowledge. Love is not blind. Listen to this. Love is not blind. Love is biblically informed. Love is not blind. Love is biblically informed. And this is where the fire starts to burn bright. With a biblically informed love, we can approve what is excellent. We aren't left just trying to guess or trying to create our own morality. We build our system of values based on the foundation of God's self-revelation in Scripture. How we see God, that's, the, that's how we build our moral framework. And in verse 10 and 11, we find out the reason why it's so important that we approve what is excellent. It says, because as we approve what is good and excellent, or what is excellent, we, we will be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruits of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Can you imagine a more beautiful picture than this? A church that has lived with abundance and has engaged knowledge and discernment to fuel the flame of this love is standing before her bridegroom. The bridegroom is Jesus and the church is the bride. And this church has resisted dry religion that is true but lifeless. But this church has also resisted a hallmark faith that has no substance. This church has courageously pursued a life of triple chocolate love, extravagant love, exuberant love, overwhelming love, unconditional love, fierce love, passionate love, and this church has pursued knowledge and truth and the approval of what is excellent. This church has resisted the urge to water down truth in the cause of tolerance. This church has also resisted the temptation to extinguish love in the pursuit of truth. The flame of love and the substance of truth have both been embraced. And it has not been easy. Let no one tell you that this is easy. 
The church is tired. The church is weary of the battle of applying knowledge to love and love to knowledge. It has been tempting to throw away knowledge and just to go with love or to give up love in the pursuit of truth. The church is exhausted from this constant tension of living out a biblically informed love. The church is drained from trying to apply biblical principles to the current issues of society. But she has not quit. She has come through this battle, scarred and worse for wear, but with the glint of victory in her eye. Christ looks at her and he sees her as pure and blameless. He sees her as filled with the fruits of righteousness that come from himself. She is verdant. The fruits of her faithfulness are scattered throughout the earth. This is amazing. That the life of love and knowledge and discernment is a fruitful life, a worthwhile life, a life-giving life. And if we're faithful to love and knowledge and discernment, this will be us on the day of Christ. This is our destiny if we hold on to love and knowledge and discernment. And as we see in the second part of verse 11, it's a God-glorifying life. Just, just look at how, how it ends. To the glory and praise of God. And that's what it's all about. God's glory. I have to be careful how they say this. His glory never changes. But how we see it. God's glory shines brighter as we hold fast to the word of life. This is overflowing joy. This is what I'm talking about. Over this past week. As I've mentioned already, we've seen an unprecedented flood hit North Gore. We weren't expecting it. Many of us will have to wait weeks until things are restored. And for some of us, especially the farmers, things will never be the same again. And as I've visited various people over this week, I could feel the real disappointment and the struggle, but also the determination to keep on going, to pick up and carry on. And our culture has also been flooded. We are in the midst of a moral storm. And I'm not fear-mongering or trying to be sensational. I'm not trying to preach, preach to the choir. That's not what I'm trying to do here. But the reality is that many truths that have been self-evident for hundreds, if not thousands of years, are now being overturned in an instant. One example is marriage. As one author writes... Every Christian church and every Christian will face huge, huge decisions in the wake of this moral storm. When marriage is redefined, an entire universe of laws, customs, rules, and expectations changes as well. Words such as husband and wife, mother and father, at one time the common vocabulary of, any, of every society, are now battlegrounds of moral conflict. And we're seeing this. And marriage is just one example. Our, cult, our culture is trying to orientate itself without any absolutes. So to use the words of verse 9, it's trying to, to discern without the foundation of the knowledge of God. So imagine being underwater without any idea of which way is up or down. It's frightening. And for those of us who are Christians, we can be tempted in one of two extremes. Either to isolate ourselves or to give full approval. And in the larger church, you see these two groups. We also see them here in Cornerstone, because we're just a microcosm of what's going on in the larger church. On the one hand, um, there are those who want their love to abound more and more, and that's so important. 
And so, but when you only focus on that, what you do is you give approval to lifestyles and practices that God condemns in the Bible. Why, is, why does this happen? Because these people want to represent a God of love. And this is noble, this is good. But this love gets lived out in approval or maybe tolerance. And this group is like, like Dorothy's scarecrow. There's lots of heart, but little brain. And on the other hand, you have a group that's viewing culture through a biblical lens. And this group can sound very afraid, very angry, very defensive, very vitriolic. This group is like Dorothy's tin man, lots of brain, but little heart. And so when we see the culture diverging from biblical values, as it is now, our adrenaline surges, and we're faced with a desire either to run away or or to run after the world and say, include me, I'm just like you, that's the one temptation. Or the other temptation is to run away and say, leave me alone, I'm nothing like you. Listen to these words from one writer. In our day, people want to separate the knowledge of God's word from love. Love today is associated more with tolerance and feelings than with truth and righteousness. Many operate by, if it feels right, then it's acceptable. If, you're tr- if you try to correct someone, then you're labeled as intolerant and therefore unloving. Do you feel this tension? Because I feel this tension every day. It weighs on me heavy. Tolerance is today's ultimate moral code. Our greatest fear is to be called intolerant. You see, the golden rule used to be, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But today, Canada's golden rule is tolerate others, and if you're lucky, they will tolerate you. But tolerance is never the answer. I mean, what would a world look like if every neighbor, every person around the world looked at each other and they uttered these words, I tolerate you? Well, that's what we're seeing in the world right now. And it's not nice. It's a world that's ruled by by fear. Fear of being outed as intolerant. But let me tell you this, that tolerance is just indifference in disguise. Or as G.K. Chesterton memorably said, tolerance is the virtue of those who don't believe anything. And Ravi Zacharias pointed out the ridiculousness of tolerance as a supreme ideal. Engage your brain, because Ravi Zacharias is an intelligent guy, and, uh, or if not, listen to the sermon again online and just let it um, repeat so that you can really get it. He says this, all religions, plainly, plainly and simply, cannot be true. Some beliefs are false, and we know them to be false. So it does no good to put a halo on the notion of tolerance as if everything could be equally true. To deem all beliefs equally true is sheer nonsense for the simple reason, this is where it gets complicated, to deem all beliefs um, equally true is sheer nonsense for the simple reason that to deny that statement would also then be true. But if the denial of, of the statement is also true, then all religions are not true. Genius. Think about it. Listen to it later. So as Christians, this is where the rubber hits the road. We have something better to offer than tolerance. We have the hope and holiness of Jesus Christ. In fact, this is the vision statement of the Global Wesleyan Church, transforming lives, churches, and communities through the hope and holiness of Jesus Christ. And to me, 
I don't know about you, but offering the hope and holiness of Jesus Christ sounds a lot better than me looking at my neighbor and saying, I tolerate you. Just live and let live. This is the love that abounds more and more. And it's not just the love that abounds more and more. It's a love that abounds more and more with knowledge and all discernment. The knowledge of God, of Christ, of the Bible, of the principles of faith gives us the platform from which we can discern what is right. And therefore, as we read here, we can approve what is excellent. This will mean that we can be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And this will bring glory and praise to God, even if it means that right now we need to face the ridicule or contempt or pity of the world around us. This prayer is one that we need to carry in our back pockets. We, we, we need to carry around Philippians chapter 1, verse 9 through 11. We need to memorize it. We need to pray it for each other. Because if we pray this, we'll never have things to run out to pray for each other. Because this prayer shows us how we can engage with the lost, broken, and sin-filled world with outrageous love. Remember that, outrageous love and courageous truth. And so for those of us here who are following Christ, I truly hope that you will experience this joy that overflows, that enables you to resist hopelessness in the face of a culture that is hostile to Jesus. And for those of us here who have not yet decided to follow Jesus, I tell you today that even now he's calling you to himself. He's the only place where perfect love and perfect truth can be found. He's the only one who can give you a clean, clean slate, a brand new start. He's the only one who can give you a renewed mind and a new heart, just like that Ravensbrook guard. So do not hesitate any longer. He's poised to pump your life free of the dirty water of sin and regret and to replace that sin with his righteousness. Trust in him today and find out what a life looks like that replaces the up and down flip-flop roller coaster ride with peace and certainty and overflowing joy in Jesus. As the worship team comes up, let's pray. Father, please increase our love for one another. Help us to love one another based on our knowledge of Christ and his word. Grant us your discernment to know how best to express Christ-centered love to one another, as well as how to express love to the outside world. Help us not become jaded and cynical and angry and separate. Fill our hearts with the love of Christ, and may our love for him who took hold of us cause us to love others more sacrificially and genuinely. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.